This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas, and it's a great pleasure once again to welcome Case van der Pell. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Well, thank you for having me, Germ. Um, how is your 2023 treating you so far? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in a, a blessed position of being old and no longer being dependent on, on the pressures of, of work. Although I work very hard, I do it out of my own interest and impulse. But what I see around me, of course, is, is very worrying because uh, the Netherlands, uh, our government, is um, in the forefront of the countries that want to keep the Ukraine conflict going uh, out of the original intention, which was to weaken Russia. And um, yeah, in my view, this is a long, long prepared uh, strategy. Um, the whole, the whole end, the, the end of the Cold War was always an, an unfinished business. Uh, you know, if you think of the Soviet Union, which had something like 190 nations, national groups, nationalities, etc., even down to very small, of course. But if you have to divide 190 um, nationalities, nations, etc., over 15 in new republics from one day to the next, you get endless conflicts for the simple reason that, uh, well, North and South Ossetia, for instance, are divided between Georgia, which had South Ossetia, and Russia, which had North Ossetia. But the Ossetians, of course, want to be together etc etc and there are, there are scores of conflicts of that type and that means that that um, Russia today is still in a weak position because when the um, precipitate breakup of the Soviet Union occurred um, 25 million Russians uh, woke up uh, in a foreign country from one day to the next and nowhere has that been more explosive than in Ukraine, which is, of course, after Russia, the largest of the former republic. Uh, Kazakhstan is larger, but there are more people in Ukraine. And um, the West has responded to that uh, situation by trying to recruit uh, Ukraine and Georgia, of course, but that's much smaller into the Western lineup to, to make it practically impossible for Russia, given modern warning times for uh, the launching of advanced uh, weapons, practically impossible to defend itself against uh, military ad adventures launched on from its border in Poland, in Romania, and uh, well, Ukraine was, was the trigger, of course, for Russia to, to become very concerned and, and in 2007, Putin already announced at the Munich Security Conference in Germany that Russia would no longer accept uh, NATO enlargement um, 
And the next year, um, he, he showed in, in Georgia, I just mentioned the division between the two Ossetias, he showed that this was a serious threat. They would not countenance any further advance of Russia, of uh, NATO on its borders. And, and now that's being acted out again in, in Ukraine uh, on a much larger scale. But in this case, uh, with the full support of the NATO countries, especially the United States and Britain, but also our, my own Netherlands in a junior role. And that's that's very worrying because because of the, the, the people governing us are so incompetent. It, it almost seems, and I don't just mean that in a polemical sense, but it almost seems that that the leaders have been selected for incompetent, uh, for incompetence. We, we have a finance minister who knows nothing of uh, finance. We have a prime minister who appears to be um applying for a job outside of the country in some international organization and his behavior is entirely contrary to what the national interest requires you know our main port rotterdam and a, a secondary port which is flushing Vlissingen, are main transit point of american military hardware destined for eastern europe uh, that means that we should not provoke, uh, in, in an already ongoing military conflict, we should not provoke the other side in, in uh, attacking these harbors, which from a military point of view would be entirely logical. Of course, politically, they will not do that so easily. So in that sense, as I said uh, before we started, uh, we, we are in a situation where very easily uh, things can turn very nasty at, at short notice and I only hope that as happened in the Cuba crisis um, that uh, well both party will blink at the right time and and withdraw from the precipice but that's not very likely well I I, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a, a picture of Putin over my bed but I must say that I consider him a, a, a really a real a statesman of a caliber that we no longer have in Western Europe for instance and certainly not in the United States or, or Canada mm. um, I can't speak for your country but you know better than I do um, so there has to be there have to be uh, wide, uh, wise leaders who, who know what what is in the balance and what what the risks are. For instance, at some point in the still in the Soviet Union, Yevgeny Primakov was was a candidate to become party leader when the Soviet Union still existed, and the, the leadership around him who had to appoint him, uh, uh, to appoint him decided that he was a bit of a hothead who should not be entrusted, in spite of his cap capacities, who should not be entrusted with such a delicate task of having to deal with a dangerous opponent, which was the imperialist West. And uh, I think in that sense, uh, we should uh, console ourselves that Putin and his foreign secretary Lavrov are people who strike me as as very capable, very responsible, and 
at the moment that is necessary because we no longer mm. have a uh, John F. Kennedy and uh, to represent our side. We, we only have these idiots that I just mentioned, the incompetents, the people who play to, to the media, uh, who have photo opportunities, but who, who apparently don't read, who have no sense of history. You will have heard, and that's my last uh, sentence, but you will have heard that the uh, Secretary General of NATO, uh, Stoltenberg, that he said, if things continue the way they do, uh, before you know, it will be a, a generally accepted rule that you can invade another country and have your way. Now, that's exactly what happened in the last 30 years many times, with the West always being uh, the, the attacking party. And so it seems as if they have no sense of history and no sense of the risks involved. Mm. Case, the MH17 Malaysian Airlines flight was shot out the sky in 2014. Why is that incident significant today? Well, um, you know, I, I did this book uh, in in English, it was called uh, Flight MH17, Ukraine and the New Cold War. And, and that was published in 2018. So let's say written in 2017 and the research in the years before that. And it had as a subtitle Prism of Disaster. Because in this incident, you saw, as it were, all the major geopolitical issues coming together. Um, there was a plan, for instance, uh, to have a pipeline across the Black Sea um, from Russia to a gas pipeline from Russia to Bulgaria. Uh, there was the rise of the BRICS, uh, well known to you, uh, in the world relative to uh, the United States and the West. Uh, there was a military situation, a civil war that had broken out because Ukrainian ultranationalists had been, brought, had been brought to power by an American-directed coup in February 2014, so half a year before, uh, or no, let me say four months before the, the MH17 disaster. So this plane, as it were, encapsulated or, or, or symbolized the, the issues at stake. And of course, because the West needed uh, a new enemy, because um, there was something else, and that was that in uh, September of 2014, there would be a, a summit of NATO in Wales. And the danger for NATO was that it might well be uh, that uh, the debacle of the intervention in Afghanistan would be the number one issue on the, on the agenda. If, on the other hand, it would be possible before September to have uh, Putin cast uh, as, as the villain again, they might unify around the idea of Russian uh, aggression, uh, which had to be withstood, etc., and NATO was most suitable for that. So, in that sense, at the, at the time, I should, I should add, at the time, I didn't know uh, what I know today about the details of the downing of the plane. So in the, the book is still, is mainly about the geopolitical context and the geo-economic context, if you will, especially the, the gas pipelines. 
Um, uh, and it has half, uh, half a chapter of five in all uh, about the actual downing of the plane. Uh, but it runs through the book as a red thread. Uh, at the time, I, I approached it in an agnostic way because I thought it would be fair to the reader to not to begin with with all kind of uh, uh, conclusions that I basically still had to discover and 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 more approach more carefully. Today, on the other hand, many things that I still uh, was very reticent on uh, at the time are much clearer because the book that I just mentioned was translated into several languages and uh, to present these uh, translations I went to Berlin uh, and spoke to um, uh, former um, officers of the East German uh, air defense people who had worked uh, and taught on the type of missile that supposedly had downed the plane uh, there was also a Russian translation, so I went to Moscow, spoke with other people, and there was even a Brazilian translation into Portuguese. Uh, and they also had some background facts that I, that I later could introduce. So at the moment, I'm, I'm much more aware of what is possible and what is impossible in the, in the facts are they, as they are presented. And I'm much more... Uh, convinced that, although I can always be wrong, of course, but I'm much more convinced that um, it was the Western side, I, I would even say the Ukrainians themselves, which shot down this plane, and that the, the West, especially the United States, um, exploited the situation very quickly and may even have been uh, involved to some extent in the planning although the role of british mi6 is more is better documented they 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 were there uh, in a sort of planning role um, so in that sense the situation has evolved and more things have come out into the open to uh, and now now that is a, there's an open war of course against Russia basically with with Ukrainians uh, providing the cannon fodder and acting as the proxy um, there's a war on and that means that it all becomes much more logical that the West was taking great risks because the coup itself was already a step in the direction of a confrontation with Russia and the people in the West at the top of course are fully aware of this they they have think tanks and universities etc who work for them and it will provide all the necessary detail yeah i mean we'll get to all of that in a moment but just for for the purposes of uh context what is the official story the official story is that ukrainian military shot down the plane no, no. I beg your pardon, Russian. The, the I beg your pardon, Russian. Story, I mean Russian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're running ahead of the uh, where we're at, <laughs> where we will end up. <laughs> the, the, the official story. The official story is that, um, uh, well, mind you, there, there has been a trial. The trial ended a few weeks ago, uh, or, or a month ago already, and. Uh, the trial concluded, uh, con uh, convicted three people for murder, 
and there were two Russians and uh, one Ukrainian from the Donbas provinces, so from the rebels. And there was also one um, Russian who had himself, who, who was defended in court, although he wisely didn't turn up, because uh, if you think of the fate of Yugoslav leader Milosevic, who died in his cell, another another Serbian as well, it's, it's better in, uh, even if Holland boasts being the greatest uh, power in world uh, justice, you know, from, from the 17th century on, it's, it's better not to uh, surrender to them too easily. Um, so, the official story has been confirmed by a, a verdict of the judges in that trial in Amsterdam, in, uh, near Amsterdam. Uh, and, and that is that uh, Russians uh, willfully shot down the plane with a, a buck, uh, intermediate range, anti-aircraft uh, missile. Now, um, that is a story that is untenable on all grounds. Um, because, as I, I told you, I, I was in East Germany for, or in, in Germany and spoke to former East European, East uh, German air defense uh, specialists. Uh, and they told me that uh, a Buck missile cannot miss um, uh, a passenger airliner which is flying in a straight um, in a straight line because it, it is a, a, a target of roughly 800 square meters uh, you know as, as a, a sort of big football field and uh, it will always be a direct hit because that is what this uh, missile is made for and, and, and it cannot fail. That It's as simple as that. Only when a plane, uh, a fighter plane for instance, uh, would, be able, would be seeing that a missile is approaching and, and its radar will uh, warn it and so on and so forth, it can uh, start all kind of um, maneuvers to avoid it. Uh, but uh, an, uh, a passenger plane doesn't do that. It goes in a straight line. So the claim of the investigation was that there was one Buck missile which exploded uh, using its proximity fuse, which which means that if you if a missile misses its target, again between brackets, it cannot in this case. But if it misses its target, it it is still able to explode near its target. And then it sends a, a, a hail of uh, uh, hot uh, little uh, pieces, um, which come into it at a target at a speed of five, six times the speed of sound. Um, uh, and it, the target will explode. Now, what happened in this case, uh, of course, we. we going into a lot of detail, but what happened in this case is that the plane actually didn't explode. The MH17 uh, passenger plane broke up in different parts. And uh, yeah, I'm now writing a Dutch version of this book with, with a few extra chapters on the war and how, how it came to actual fighting. So you, you have to interrupt me 
but uh, before because otherwise I'll, I'll slip into all kind of details that are not interested to the interesting to a, a general listener but <laughs> the point is uh, the official account cannot stand up against the facts not just the experience of these uh, old hands from the former East Germany but also to kind uh, the fact of the damage to the to the plane in the in the war with Georgia that I already mentioned uh, where Russia uh, counterattacked when Georgia tried to uh, gain control of its uh, lost province of South Ossetia in that war 10 Russian uh, jet fighters were shot down by uh, Burke uh, missiles so the, the supposed missile the uh, missile that supposedly brought down MH17 in all uh, 10 cases the plane exploded in the air but the pilot had it had a chance to save himself by his uh, um, by escaping from from the canopy um, in this case the the plane was hit in several places uh, in such a way that you could see it had been uh, the cockpit had been shot at by uh, cannon uh, from a plane which is only possible from a plane after it had been slowed down by uh, two air-to-air -air missiles one hitting uh, the left engine and that's all proven now by looking at the damage and the fact that the engine broke off at least the, the inlet ring of the of the left engine and one exploding where uh, roughly near the cockpit where uh, the official investigation maintains that it uh, that the buck exploded uh, and to prove that the um, uh, that it was a Russian made bug uh, of the newest type that only Russia has Ukraine doesn't uh, to prove that they had two little particles of these red-hot particles that uh, you know penetrate uh, the target uh, mind you two little particles whereas if uh, a bug explodes even if it's not a direct hit but a, a proximity fuse hit uh, it sends something like 8700 of these particles into the target now if you have two any sane person will realize that it must have been different there's more detail to this but I won't bother you with it the other thing is that uh, and that is very important um, the cockpit broke off now the cockpit you must imagine huh? we're talking about a Boeing uh, 700 and then the series number that's an enormous plane uh, for for a cockpit to break off the entire front the first 16 meters of such a vast structure to break off as at 10 kilometers high that's not possible no, nothing of the arms that have been proven to or claimed to have played a role could ever break off the um, the cockpit and that happened uh, because again I in each case I should say in all probability but it happened 
um, because right after the cockpit, in under the floor where you have uh, the cargo, because a passenger plane also carries uh, 17 tons of cargo, and one and a half ton of that was lithium-ion batteries, you know, for for use as you know, electrical machines or uh, one and a half ton, and that's uh, lithium-ion batteries have a, a great explosive potential, really the equivalent of a bomb, because once they are on fire, they uh, produce uh, car. Uh, gases that are highly flammable and, and produce a, a tremendous uh, explosion. Even if, I mean, they, they will have been hit by the type of munition that was used to shoot at the, at the um, uh, cockpit and uh, caught fire as a result. It may also be, and that's something which is uncertain because that, that area has not been investigated at all, it may also be that uh, there was, on, apart from the one and a half ton of lithium-ion batteries, there was also a bomb inside. Now you may say, well, it's not so likely that at a well-protected airport like Schiphol in, near Amsterdam, there somebody can smuggle a bomb on board, but there's a whole story there. Um, yeah, I hesitate because this is so, I'll slip into detail, so you really have to cut me off when I, when I go too far, but it's interesting because um, at Schiphol there is an Israeli company which is called ICTS uh, and that's uh, that was set up by former Israeli Secret Service people and former LL security people. It was uh, launched, I think, in the early 80s. And this is a company that has a long history of close involvement in uh, terror, terror and counter-terror activity. For instance, their um, subsidiary in the United States, Huntley, which is a subsidiary of ICTS, um, was accused uh, of negligence because they allowed the um, uh, Arab hijackers of two planes uh, uh, departing uh, and ending up supposedly, I must say, that's a different story, in the Twin Towers in 2001, but they allowed <laughs> these Arab uh, boys to uh, get on board of these planes. So Huntley was attacked in the United States for negligence and in the end had to uh, give up that particular branch of its activity. But not in Amsterdam. There they remained, and, and a lot of other airports as well, but there they remained uh, operational. And uh, I think in 2007, uh, so that was at the height of the war on terror, uh, they arranged for a Nigerian boy... Yeah, 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 I know what you mean. For a Nigerian boy to uh, get on board a plane for the United States, again, you have to, to, to see what a, what a level of security there exists at mm. Schiphol. Even if you have to take your shoes off, you have to go back because you watched, uh, your watch caused uh, an alarm and so on. And they let uh, a boy 
onto a plane uh, who had uh, has un his underwear stacked with explosives. There's a whole story there where you can talk about for an hour, but it, it reminds you of the fact that this particular group, this security firm, which is headquartered at Schiphol in Amsterdam, can perform feats and is very deeply involved in uh, security matters. So compared to, for instance, letting that uh, Nigerian boy board a, a plane for the US packed with uh, explosives, compared to that, Putting a bomb in the in the cargo is it's possible. Play. That's that's mm. not, that's again, it's possible. They didn't call me to tell, you know, in tears to confess that they had done it. But yeah. I mentioned in my in my new book how important it is to to um, investigate this possibility. But the committee that did that, um, the JRT, apparently, yeah. Now, now, before the JIT, you had the uh, Dutch Security, the, uh, Dutch Safety Board, the DSB, and they performed a so-called technical uh, investigation to establish how the plane had actually come down. And about the 1.3 tons of lithium-ion batteries, they say literally in the report there were no... Um, uh, there were no, was no safety issue with the with the plane. There was one battery on board, mind you, 1.3 tons. There was one battery on board, but it was well packed and secured. So we needn't <laughs> further go into that. Now that means that if, if you if you write down such a clear lie, you are uh, <laughs> no, you know that you're lying. Mm. And, and there's a whole, again, a further story, you know, there, there are many people involved in the entire MH17 uh, affair who are uh, security specialists and terror specialists, not just this uh, ICTS firm, but also the head of the Dutch safety board at the time was a former um, head of the Dutch anti-terror uh, organization, a sort of extra police your homeland security, let's call it that. And uh, so he he was an insider in the Atlantic, uh, yeah, terror slash anti-terror industry. So all these things uh, make clear that um, you are you are looking at at a an, or, an organization a network around this event, which stinks on all sides, you know, and which should be seriously uh, investigated, except that didn't happen for the simple reason that the head of the investigation was uh, somebody from that very uh, terror, anti-terror network. Um, and I, as I said, you know, there, there was a, uh, I think the Ukrainians did it. Uh, their their planes. There's, again, the story is too complex, but also in a way uh, uninteresting because the technical details are secondary and and interesting only to specialists. But I think the the uh, Ukrainians did it, and there was a an Ukrainian officer from their security service, Prozorov, who later, after I wrote my book, initial book. 
And uh, well, it's it's that sort of detail. But at the same time, while I'm speaking, I'm 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 also hesitating because I think I shouldn't bother you and and any viewers with too much detail, uh, technical things which go into one ear and out the other. Mm. Because the main thing is that the West was gearing up to a major confrontation with Russia, something that had become irreversible by the coup in February. Yes. MH17 is a, is a moment, a very dramatic moment in the build-up uh, in an already evolving civil war, in the may build-up I... to this confrontation. Sorry for, sorry for interrupting you, but Case, may I Hello. just see if I'm, I'm, I'm following you? So what you're saying is that the build-up is part of the framework of refocusing the United States, the West, as supreme um yeah because they're upset with the with where russia is and they're trying to mobilize georgia and ukraine against perhaps a resurgence from russia is that correct exactly exactly and there and there you also have to realize that of course in 1989 1991 when the soviet union and its bloc collapsed uh we we entered an era of American slash Western supremacy in, in which basically nobody could afford any longer to pursue autonomous policies that might conflict with uh, those of the West. But when George Bush uh, became president, so when after Clinton, uh, the Republicans again uh, won the White House, they made uh, a, a turn they they chose to use that supremacy to pursue a policy in the Middle East, which had to do with oil, which had to do with Israel. It's a different story. And energy. And that created enormous, yeah, and, and that created enormous resentment in, in the United States itself because many American uh, politicians, especially from the Democratic side, you know, Brzezinski, uh, uh, Wesley Clark um, thought that, that this was the stupidest thing you could do. You had world supremacy. That means that you must take on the powers that really can challenge that supremacy. And that is, of course, never Iraq or Syria or, or whatever. That's Russia and China. So as soon as Bush had been replaced in 2008 by Obama, the whole machine gears back to the confrontation with uh, Russia, and especially after the uh, second, uh, uh, when when Putin returns to the Kremlin and Obama gets his second term, you can see that the build-up of of a, uh, a frontal confrontation between the United States and its and NATO, you know, NATO being the machinery with which it controls uh, the European states and prevents. Uh, countries like Germany and France ever to to depart from uh, uh, American preferences. 
you can see that the machinery is geared up to, to uh, towards this confrontation. And if I if I may add one more thing, after after the coup, you know, and you probably know the details of the coup, uh, Victoria Victoria Newland setting up the new government and so on and so forth. But after uh, the coup, Wesley Clark, the former NATO commander, who was one of those who really attacked the orientation towards the Middle East and wanted to revert to the main confrontation with Russia, uh, Wesley Clark uh, wrote an email uh, because he was an advisor already of the coup regime in Kiev after February 2014. He wrote an email that had later been hacked, has later been hacked to his successor as uh, NATO, as commander of NATO, General Breedlove, in which he said, Russia and China are becoming too strong and have to, will have to be confronted. And it's best if we uh, arrange that that confrontation takes place in Ukraine, because if we let Ukraine slip, uh, the Soviet Union will come back. That, that was his argument. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to read the whole text, because it shows the mindset of these people, still entirely, for instance, concerned with uh, the number of uh, aircraft carriers that China will have in so many years. Whereas aircraft carriers, actually, if you think about it, are, are the sitting ducks these days of, uh, of uh, modern warfare. But even so, he, he literally says, let's draw the line in Ukraine, because otherwise we will have to fight them later somewhere else in a much more un, uh, unfavorable position. Is that, is that connected to the regime change that happened in Ukraine. Oh yes, yes, because <clears throat> he uh, the regime change was to prevent uh, the further rise of um, <coughs> sorry to prevent the further rise of the forces associated with eastern Ukraine, eastern and southern Ukraine, where Russian were Russian by origin. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> well, you have your problem with uh, and a <laughs> with power ele- failure with electricity. <laughs> <coughs> Luckily, <I'm... laughs> but but southern southern and eastern Ukraine <coughs> were economically always more powerful. They are the industrial part. Their oligarchs were also more powerful than the oligarchs of the West. And Yanukovych was the frontman of the Eastern oligarchs, although he tried to hold the country together by federal arrangements. (coughs) So the coup was necessary to prevent the consolidation of the federal system in Ukraine which would, one way or another, mind you, always against the background of massive stealing by these oligarchs, including Yanukovych's family himself. (coughs) They would always, that had to be interrupted, and the coup was that interruption. It it made sure that uh, the whole federal 
half of the country was disenfranchised. Yanukovych was chased away, fled to, uh, to uh, Russia, although Putin didn't like him at all because he thought Yanukovych should have been concerned with uh, political matters and not been stealing uh, as, as a newcomer in the ranks of the oligarchy. Mm. Um, so the coup was the first step towards interrupting a development that would have ended with um, better relations between Ukraine and Russia. And, uh, the, well, the civil war was a consequence of the fact that the nationalists, the Ukrainian nationalists, gained power in uh, Kiev. And, well, MH17 was simply a moment in, in that civil war, uh, which had to do with, uh, with the dangerous situation for the Ukrainian military that had to, uh, you know, which had to intervene to cast Putin as a danger, also in relation to uh, the upcoming meeting of NATO and so on and so forth. So in that sense, it's dangerous to, to slip into too much detail. Yes. Uh, because we have to maintain the, well, the, the, the aspect of a conscious buildup of uh, Ukraine as a, for, as, a, as a state that would take on Russia, would be able to take on Russia. And between 2017, uh, 2014 and uh, February of last year, um, of last year, uh, 2022, that is the invasion by Russia of uh, the, the uh, separatist uh, provinces, um, between that period, NATO has trained and equipped the Ukrainian army to a level where it would be able to withstand successfully so far, although it's now nearing the end, um, uh, the Russian invasion to a degree which it never could have achieved uh, in 2014. Now... Is there a relationship with BRICS and Ukraine at this stage of the game? Um, well, well, not not with the Ukraine at uh, where, where it is now, because mm. Ukraine is economically destroyed, its infrastructure is destroyed, uh, its people have fled to a large uh, degree. Politically, it's completely. Uh, has been completely grounded, so it it, it is a an em, a sort of empty space. It's a ghost, a ghost country. But in the past, of course, uh, the reason why it became the bone of contention was precisely the rise of the BRICS. In purely, in if if you look at the yeah the measure of cross national product, is not so much. You know, if if uh, in a country, uh, 3% of the population decides no longer to cry uh, on the shoulder of a partner, uh, but to go to psychiatrists for, for help, you have 3% growth. So growth in purely quantitative terms doesn't mean anything, if you see what I mean. Mm. Uh, but if you look at purchasing power, 
parity, you see what you can do with a particular national uh, currency, you know as well as I do that China is now the number one economy in the world. Uh, Russia is not at all, as it's always said, equivalent of Spain, but it's the number four or three, uh, you know, after the United States and Japan, and so on and so forth. And so the whole BRICS has have risen in the ranking of of world power. And as I said, uh, GMP is is a confusing measure; doesn't mean so much. Certainly not if you if you count finance as as a contribution to gross national product then a speculative economy will always be high in the ranks whereas in fact it's it's fragile and bound to to dive to nose dive but the rise of the BRICS is is a great danger because what is now coming to a head in Ukraine is that the Western petrodollar led uh, speculative economy is up against an, is a block of economies which is interested in uh, real investment. Uh, you know, China with its famous uh, railway and shipping lines uh, to the tip of uh, Eurasia, uh, Russia with its vast uh, quantities of uh, raw materials, well, your own South Africa, of course, with its diamonds and gold, and all these things are represent real value, whereas the dollar, the euro, and the yen uh, are paper currencies uh, behind which there is less and less uh, real value. And now that the United States is losing its standing in the world so fast, that entire dollar-denominated world order is, is coming apart. Uh, I've never seen... Uh, imagine that, that Saudi Arabia, which is the linchpin of the petrodollar system as it was introduced in 1973 to replace the original post-war Bretton Woods system, that Saudi Arabia of all countries now is, is um, exploring uh, the possibility of joining the BRICS. Now, that, if, that, that couldn't be a more eloquent... Uh, symbol of the loss of cloud of the United States in uh, in the world. Mm. Also, the refusal of most of the world of uh, to to condemn uh, the Russian attack on on Ukraine, which of course, strictly speaking, was an attack, except mm. it was an attack against Zelensky. Uh, yeah, but it was it was an attack in response to the the relentless advance of NATO in breach of all that was agreed in 1989 with Gorbachev. You know, NATO mm. would not expand an inch, and so on and so forth. Now, the shooting down of MH17 was there significance uh, to South Stream and the shooting down of the plane? Yeah, uh, well, I, I would say if, if you look at, um, there's an indirect connection, but there are also several direct connections which make the indirect connection more direct. And that is this, on um, Putin uh, was attending on, in, in the week preceding the downing of MH17, Putin was attending a summit in Brazil uh, with the other leaders of the BRICS, 
in which they decided, in light of the failures to get the IMF uh, and the World Bank to be, become more development-oriented and less oriented towards securing free access for speculative uh, investment, um, they wanted to uh, bring to uh, to to speed up the creation of the, of an alternative uh, development bank and an alternative monetary fund, and that was seen by the United States as a as a direct attack on its primacy in uh, in the global political economy. So on 16 um, July, one day before the downing of MH17. Obama instituted new um, sanctions and these sanctions were targeting in particular the um, uh, energy supply uh, from Russia uh, to uh, Europe and the EU countries had a meeting on the 16th in which they could not reach agreement to um, follow these steps so they didn't want to uh, follow the Americans new American sanctions and they proposed instead to have a tripartite uh, discussion with uh, between the EU with Russia and Ukraine to modernize the Ukrainian uh, gas pipeline grid and uh, make arrangements to have a more secure supply of Russian gas to Europe um, that that was on 16 July but there was something else and that was that uh, on um, 16 July, uh, there was also a, um, uh, the final of the World Football Championship, uh, soccer. I don't know whether in South Africa you use soccer or football. Uh, we use well, both. Football, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there's a famous photograph where you see uh, Putin sitting on the stands in the stadium with Merkel and they were chatting, uh, I guess, about the match, but because Merkel was also in Brazil to attend the final uh, uh, match with uh, Germany. And Putin and Merkel then agreed in principle to work on a definitive solution of the Ukrainian crisis. And that, invo that also involved the... Um, the gas issue, so the restoration of the gas supply through Ukraine to Europe. Now, both these things, the, the sanctions, the refusal of the EU to go along with the new American energy sanctions and uh, the um, agreement in principle between uh, Merkel and Putin on a sort of final uh, deal concerning uh, uh, Ukraine, which also involved, for instance, the recognition of Crimea belonging to Russia. That's why the, that deal was called the Land for Gas uh, Agreement. That uh, deal had, of course, a direct connection also to the plans uh, for South Stream. South Stream had been started, really began uh, building work in 2012 already, but we're talking about an enormous project uh, under the entire um, Black Sea. And uh, the downing of MH17 led to the immediate uh, ending of the Merkel-Putin agreement, 
which was an agreement in principle. In three or four days, it led to the EU, after all, joining the new American energy sanctions. And in December of 2014, it led to uh, the definitive abandonment of the plans for South Stream. So, so you can see, of course, it's not a computer game. There are many interests, many different layers uh, of, of decision making involved. But that's that's how it how it went. Does there it fit some in... other very juicy? Yes, uh, no, I'm sorry. Please go on. There were some other juicy. No, no. There are some other uh, very juicy uh, developments, like for instance, the assassination on a Moscow airfield of the head of Total Energy, French energy company. Uh, the head of that uh, company, uh, De Margerie, was uh, blown up with his uh, plane uh, on the runway when it tried to uh, take off by sure. his uh, snow uh, snowplow uh, with the peculiarity that there was no snow. So you can ask why was there a snowplow <laughs> plow which drove into the into the plane? But but that's. The Marjorie had said that he didn't want uh, the energy world energy markets to be dominated by uh, the dollar, and he didn't want to abide by the American embargo against mm. Russian energy. So he was in Moscow to discuss personally with uh, with uh, Putin in September, I think September or October, two thousand fourteen, and th that sort of events <coughs> have to be mentioned. Uh, people will quickly say, ah, oh, that's conspiracy theory. No, it's, it tells you something about the readiness of the powers that be to apply deadly violence against anyone standing in the way. I mean, this is one of the boss of one of the top five energy firms, private energy firms in the West. So you have Does to it... take that into account. Does it fit into the framework? the downing of the plane and all of these other vectors that you've mentioned, does it fit into the framework of regime change in Moscow, trying to take down Putin? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that became explicit, I would say, in 2019, 2020. In, in the new version, the Dutch version of the book that I'm writing in Dutch simply for, the, for reasons of... of Political necessity, you know, it, it. We have to. Somebody has to intervene in the in the in the disastrous uh, course of uh, politics here on this is on this issue. Um, uh, and in that book, I've collected all that I could find uh, in American military circles and the Rand Corporation and organizations like that where they speculate on the possibilities for regime change in Moscow. And that really goes pretty far. Uh, and mind you, I may, you may have heard of, of the, um, uh, an American journalist, Jack Murphy, who recently exposed on the basis of detailed conversations with people from the intelligence services, the existence of um, underground, sort of Gladio-like underground terror uh, networks in Russia which are directed from the West and and that goes back to a plan uh, initiated by Obama uh, you know in 2016 he in so-called in response to the so-called 
um, uh, Russian influence election of Trump, uh, he gave the green light to a number of, of uh, groups to begin uh, infiltrating um, into uh, Russia and to prepare for uh, yeah, explosions, uh, sabotage, etc. And apparently the first successes were booked in um, the begin right after the uh, start of the Russian invasion, uh, the so-called special military operation in February 2020, 2022 in Belarus, where uh, entire Part of its, or a part of its, its uh, railway network was was hit by sabotage action, actions. So, yeah, as as I hear myself speak, I, I, I again we should realize to what extent this is a war of the declining West against the rising BRICS, which is fought out on all kind of intermediate stages, uh, with a bitterness that is surprising even for somebody who's familiar with the cruelty of, of international affairs. And the dining of MH17 was a catalyst. Yeah, well, catalyst is not the word because it was itself part of the of the violence that mm. that was um, rocking East-West uh, relations, but it was, as it were, a dramatic symbol, an, an icon, uh, or, or how you say that, a vignette? <laughs> You know, or a prism, as as the title of my subtitle of the book uh, suggests, of the larger conflicts of where all these strands uh, come come together. Even even the role of Malaysia is is worth a story in itself. But I won't bother you with that now, because okay, Malaysia okay. had had uh, yes, lost they, a plane. Yes, they lost the plane, Not and, plane. and they, yeah, and the airline took a took a knock. Do you believe? Yeah that this particular plane was always destined to be shot out of the sky or was it a last minute thought yeah that that's there we there we get into speculation mm. i i think if listening to prozorov and you may even have heard more of from him than than i could gather from his documentary and and his interviews um according to him MI, MI6 officers were in eastern Ukraine to negotiate, to talk to the top of the Ukrainian intelligence service. And, and uh, uh, it, may, it may be, but I haven't really found uh, convincing evidence also from other sources. It may be that they planned all along that there should be a, a dramatic false flag incident that would give the West uh, the chance to um, exploit its ultimate advantage. And the ultimate advantage of the West in the contemporary era is not so much its hardware and military capacity, because it turns out that they are not so strong at all, but is its psycho mass psychological uh, apparatus, its, its psyop uh, capacity, that begins with the, with the moon landing, so to speak. You know, the, the Americans have shown that they can make the world believe uh, anything. You know, if, if tomorrow they say the, the, the Earth is not a, a, a ball but a, a square, a lot of people will think, wow, they, they have their new facts. And 
that is also the case with with uh, MH17. Uh, whoever delves into it quickly understands that this is a different. The reality is different from what has been presented to us. But who has the capacity to and the time and and the background to to really delve into who wants mm -hmm. it? Uh, yeah, Case, it's uh, a minority. You've mentioned uh, MI6 a few times, and that by implication insinuates deep state. But you haven't mentioned CIA. Uh, you've mentioned yeah. Obama. Would you would you go as far as to say that there are people or were people behind Obama uh, pushing the buttons? Well, in in a highly comp. I mean, the 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 presidents in our time are in I, I mean in the 20th century and then now United States presidents and I guess all other leaders as well are figureheads uh, who are basically uh, you know once uh, they asked uh, Jacques Chirac the president of France former president of France whether it was uh, really so great to be the president he said no it doesn't mean so much we we just make sure that when the train passes that the barriers are down and and i think most conscious uh, political leaders will will agree with that uh, they are facing huge systems they are surrounded an american president is surrounded by let's say 1000 people who represent interests that will not take no for an answer when when they are at stake if on the other hand there is one uh, president like um, Kennedy uh, John F Kennedy who began uh, as a cold warrior let's not forget but who after the Cuba crisis began to realize this is a recipe for the ending of uh, world civilization and life on the planet who began to reorient and to to uh, yeah use the the channels of communication that had been uh, successfully used in the in the Cuban missile crisis he he was eliminated it's as simple as that because the the system as such does not tolerate a leader with a will of his or her own and a capacity to to chart routes that are at odds with the most important interest sometimes i think i mean the united states has i think uh, 350 million inhabitants <clears throat> would they really not be able to find a better figure than the half demented uh, joe biden as a president <laughs> <coughs> it might be that uh, it's ideal to have a figure like that <laughs> oh man he is really he, he is really another story isn't he yeah <laughs> it's uh, humanly speaking it's sad but uh... all right case uh let me come in for a landing with you um so in the context of this conversation with mh17 and all the collateral talking points you're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon what do you see well um russia is about to win uh, the war in ukraine 
you know, the, the Ukrainians are now, I saw some films this afternoon, uh, some video material on how Ukraine is rounding up uh, men in the age groups of, let's say, 16 to 60 to be sent to the front. Now, on top of that, they get some Western material. And, and if you see the men who are being rounded up and you then realize that all this disparate new uh, hardware has to be run by these people is practically impossible. Russia has now, has now drawn something like uh, 300,000 men plus 80,000 uh, volunteers in a ring around Ukraine, leaving Kiev guessing where, where the attack will come. So what is real, really uncertain is to what extent uh, the West will be willing, because mind you that many Western politicians, like now just the other day in Davos, for instance, uh, they, they have told each other uh, that Ukraine can still win this war. Now that point has long passed. The, the Russians are grinding down uh, the capacity of Ukraine to wage war. And mind you, this is not a sports match. This, the, all, every war, as you know better than I do, is, is a tragedy. It, war is in itself crisis. It, it's a moment of, of reckoning of truth which brings incredible human suffering on all sides. You know, every young man who dies on the battlefield, every innocent bystander who is drawn along, etc., etc. I don't have to spell that out. So it's not a sports match, but Russia will win this conflict. The, the question is whether the West will be capable of digesting the fact that they have been telling their publics uh, something which completely, which was all along completely untenable, but has become more so in the last few months. So what, what awaits us really is, is um, and what may surprise us, is to what extent uh, the Western powers and the Western publics will be willing to accommodate to a reality which Others, which people like Scott Ritter and Doug McGregor and uh, Cristoforo and all these people uh, have been uh, predicting, and that is that Russia inevitably will win the conflict. You know, I, I, in my new book, I compare the war with the war between the Soviet Union and Finland in September, November uh, 1939. The Soviet Union asked for certain strips of land to be better able to defend Leningrad uh, against uh, a Nazi invasion. Finland, of course, could only say no, because it's our land. Then the Red Army attacked and was dramatically defeated by the Finns uh, in their ski suits and, you know, mobile troops, you name it. And the whole world sympathized with Finland, little Finland standing up against the big red bully. But the next round was, of course, that the, the Russian army, the big red army, invaded for a second time and uh, defeated Finland and forced it to comply. And I think that situation is now being repeated. So Ukraine has drawn the sympathy, being the junior part, it's even called a democracy, which is not, it is not at all. 
but this, and the Russian also initially suffered very uh, damaging uh, losses because they went in with too few troops and you name it. But ultimately, of course, a country of 190 uh, million uh, people of how, or how many are there will always win from and, and double uh, the income per capita will always win from a country in disarray led by a cocaine sniffing a, a clown uh, and and a corrupt elite uh, russia is also corrupt let's not forget yeah we are corrupt i always think the west is more corrupt than anything in the, in the world because look at what happened in the covid uh, crisis you know we're killing our own people but that's a different uh, chapter so looking ahead i will say russia will prevail in this situation against serious costs but the real uncertainty is to what extent the west will accommodate itself to this uh, defeat and be ready to negotiate with russia case it's always a great pleasure chatting to you and i look forward to our our next chat but in the meantime <laughs> well I'll make sure that I have water ready to uh, <laughs> soothe my throat. Well, I'll make sure. I'll make sure. Much. I'll make sure I have electricity next time we chat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We all have our own problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. Good luck with that, uh, Joe. Case van der Pel, thank you for joining me in the trenches. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare: The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.